Hey Conjurers, I'm Sham. And I'm Steph. The case of the family I'm sharing with you today reveals a chilling plot driven by hatred, perceived burdens, and financial motives by one of their own. This case is a haunting reminder of the concealed darkness within a seemingly ordinary household. Trust no one, even your own family can betray you. Diane and Mark Stoudy were a married couple living in a modest home in Springfield, Missouri, with their four children, 26-year-old Sean, 24-year-old Sarah, 22-year-old Rachel, and the youngest 9-year-old Brianna. The entire family was known to keep to themselves, but were devout churchgoers at the Redeemer Lutheran Church, and were all respected there. Two of the Stoudy children had special needs, with Sean being on the autism spectrum and still living at home, and Brianna struggling with having learning disabilities. Sarah didn't have a learning disability, but she was a recent university graduate, so she incurred a large amount of student debt and lived at home with her parents. Diane worked as a trained nurse and handled insurance adjustment claims at her job working for the United Healthcare. Mark worked odd jobs, making Diane the household's primary breadwinner, and stuck with the responsibility of taking on all of the household bills. Mark's main focus was to make it big with his band Messing With Destiny, where he was the lead singer and guitarist. This would lead to resentment that would weigh on Diane over the years of their marriage. Um, I'm sorry, but if you're over 40 and you haven't made it with your band yet, you're probably not going to. <laughs> yeah, I think it's time to just let that dream go. <laughs> not to crush any of our listeners' dreams or anything. but Yeah, no, I mean, definitely <laughs> go, go for it. Just have expectations. When it came to the family dynamics, it was evident to both Mark and their children that Diane preferred Rachel over her siblings. Rachel often received Diane's praise with frequent photos uploaded to social media showcasing their close bond. The duo regularly exchanged shoutouts on Facebook, united by their shared passion for music. Diane's longstanding role as an organist at the church the family attended in their hometown spanned an impressive 30 years. Rachel was a talented flutist, who frequently joined her mother in musical performances. Their connection deepened even more when tragedy struck the family in 2012. On the morning of Easter on April 8th of 2012, Diane found her husband Mark unconscious and unresponsive in their bedroom. Diane called 911 stating that Mark must have died from natural causes. When the EMTs arrived on the scene, they gave Mark CPR, but it was too late. Diane told investigators that Mark had extensive medical issues, including being overweight, liver problems, being diabetic, being an active drinker, and he refused to stop smoking. Medical examiners would later share with her that Mark's lungs were completely black. His death was deemed as a stroke caused by natural causes due to his unhealthy lifestyle, and no autopsy was performed. Diane had his body cremated and soon after scattered his ashes at a lake near their home. Despite his health issues, his band described him as a guy who was full of life and a family man. It's unfortunate because their band was finally picking up in the months before his death. They were booking larger venues that paid well, and they were convinced 2012 would be their breakout year. Mark was 61 years old at the time of his death. Five months later, in September of 2012, their 26-year-old Sean fell ill, resembling severe flu-like symptoms, including throwing up. Diane didn't see the need to take him to the hospital right away. 
thinking it was just the flu and it would pass. A few days later, he was found dead on the floor of their home. Like his father, Sean was cremated, but before doing so, an autopsy was performed. Due to his epilepsy and lesions they found on his brain during his autopsy, his initial cause of death was a deadly seizure, revealing no evidence of foul play. Diane told investigators that his death wasn't a complete surprise because of his history of strokes and seizures. The community, though, noticed the lack of traditional mourning rituals in Diane's stoic demeanor, which raised eyebrows. Okay, so one death, the death of uh, Diane's husband, is, you know, tragic, of course. 61 is not that old. But it sounds like yeah. he was a little rough on his body with his lifestyle, the smoking and all of that. Right. But five months later, their son dies. I mean, it's a little kind of He seems to have had health issues as well. And everybody grieves differently. Okay, so I try not to judge the way someone grieves, but he just lost two immediate family members within five months. I feel like anybody would be losing it. Yeah, she should be devastated. I mean, no matter how you grieve, you're still grieving, right? So I feel like a second death would just hit you even harder. And that would cause you to show some type of emotion, especially it being somebody that you brought into this world. No parent wants to bury a child. Right. The loss of a child is just unimaginable. And... I don't know. I don't, it, it could be a coincidence. It could still be a coincidence. Yeah, it could be. But let's get into the next one. <laughs> Nine months later, on the morning of June 9th, 2013, Diane took her kids to church but left behind her oldest daughter, Sarah, because she wasn't feeling well. A couple hours later, after Diane returned home, she went to go check on her but couldn't get her to respond or answer anything. Diane called for Rachel to help pick Sarah up and proceeded to put her in the car to head to the hospital. As soon as they arrived at the hospital, the medical team took over. But upon examination, doctors couldn't figure out what was wrong with her, even after performing numerous tests. According to Diane, the doctor told her that Sarah was as sick as sick could get. With her kidney shutting down, her internal organs failing, and her brain hemorrhaging blood, she was not expected to survive her injuries. Diane had to prepare to bury another loved one. Diane is... A common denominator here between all these people. She's the mother, right? She is. Yep. The first two are pretty explainable, but Sarah wasn't sick. Like, she didn't have any long-term health issues. No. And college debt does not cause that. I mean, stress, but not enough to kill you. No. Um. Wow. This is no longer a coincidence. It's so suspicious. It's very suspicious. Three deaths within one year is, yeah, that that's going to raise some eyebrows. Yes, and none of these people are old or deathly ill when it happens. They're like, fine, and then one day. It happens out of nowhere. Suddenly fall ill. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so suspicious. Very suspicious. We aren't the only ones who think this is sus. Investigators handling this case, like Detective Neil McAmis, were disturbed by Diane's lack of concern for her daughter at the hospital, prompting a closer look at the family dynamics. As the investigation unfolded and a web of evidence and statements emerged, the entire community had opinions about this tragedy, from Mark and Sean's sudden death to Sarah hanging on by a thread. Even Mark's band members noticed peculiar symptoms like he looked pale, he was weak on his feet, and he didn't seem to have the same high energy he usually carried during a recording session a few days prior. 
Diane's background in nursing and lack of concern or emotion for all three Saudi victims when they became ill also rubbed their peers the wrong way. During the time Mark started showing symptoms, his son Sean took to Facebook, posting, and I quote, My father is slowly getting sicker. His voice is slurred. His walking is wobbly. His voice is more tired than usual. He's sleeping in bed longer than us. He may collapse under his weight at any time. End quote. One day later, Sean posted, My father died. He lived a full life. The cause of his death was a stroke. His funeral's in a week. End quote. Despite Diane attributing his death to natural causes, suspicions lingered as acquaintances found her behavior at the memorial service for Mark disconcerting. Okay, so her husband gets sick and dies. And her son starts posting on social media about him being sick and the symptoms that his dad was having. And then the son is the next one to die. The next one to die. Yeah. And I do want to also. So he called out that his dad was sick and then he was. And then he was next. Like. Right. (laughs) Right. I know. Yeah. And I do want to point out that that was just two of his posts. There are multiple posts that he made um, about being sick and his dad being sick that I'll put on the website for conjurers to look at. Um, But yeah, it's almost like he knew it was coming. He He was on to something. He was on to something. But, okay, this is all still complete speculation. Is there any actual proof that something sinister was happening? Well, a crucial piece of evidence came in from an anonymous call to the police who would later be identified as Pastor Jeff Sippy, expressing concerns about the striking similarities of the illnesses between Mark, Sean, and Sarah. Pastor Sippy's tip prompted authorities to intensify their scrutiny, unraveling a sinister plot within the seemingly ordinary household. The turning point in the investigation was when Sarah's doctor contacted Detective McAmis and shared that though her cause of illness could not be definitively determined, she believed that Sarah was poisoned. Dun, dun, dun. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, this is where it all starts to unravel. Detective McAmis decided the only way to get to the truth was to question those closest to the Stoudy family victims, Diane and Rachel. During Rachel's interview, she was asked about each of her family members, starting with her parents' relationship. She shared that her parents fought a lot, but no more than the average couple, their primary reason being money. Her dad was a very kind man and let his kids get away with a lot, but he lacked motivation to work and help and contribute financially to their home. She said that he was quick to get frustrated on the job, and that kept him from keeping one. She was then questioned about her brother, Sean. She said that it was a sudden death and that it was tough on her mother. Diane would tell her things like, I wish I could have done more. I failed as a mom, and it's one thing to lose your dad, but your brother? As far as her sister, Sarah, Rachel shared that she had been exhibiting flu-like symptoms and vomiting like Sean had in the days leading up to her hospitalization. Moving into Diane's interview, the detective shared that the hospital is running a bunch of tests on Sarah and asked her, do you think they'll find anything suspicious in all these tests they're doing? To which Diane replied, I have no clue. So he continued the interview. When asked about her family member's life insurance policies, Diane shared that Mark had 20K and Sean and Sarah had 15K each. With the money she received from Mark and Sean's death, Diane purchased a new home for herself and her remaining children. Diane described her marriage as one strictly on paper, but in reality, it wasn't a good one. Mark had been unfaithful in the past, and he wasn't a good guy due to the substance abuse she claimed that he had. 
At this point, there was no objective evidence of poisoning the detective could accuse Diane of, but he took a risk. He insinuated that she was responsible for their illnesses. He said things like, I think you know why we're here talking today. And I know there is a reason why some of these things happen. Diane replied referring to Sarah, I didn't do anything to her. I guess I could have taken her to the ER sooner, but I didn't know. End quote. She admitted that she may not have been the best mother because she waited so long to take her children to the doctor, but continued to insist that she didn't do anything to harm them. That's okay. I got to ask you a question, Sam. Do you think it's weird when parents have life insurance policies on their adult children? I definitely think it's weird when they're the beneficiaries of it. I agree. And the fact that she, like, was so quick to spend that money. It, like, her husband's one thing, right? Like, I mean, that's still yeah, terrible. Sure. But her husband's one thing. But It's more normal. You though. were just like, oh, my son died. Here's my down payment on this new house. Yeah. It's all weird. I just, I, I don't think of someone getting, like, thinking to get a life insurance policy on themselves until they have things like their own house, their own family, mm-hmm. things like that. Something to take care of if they're gone, right? right? Um, These children, her kids are adults, but they lived with her. So it's like they had no reason to want an insurance policy for themselves, which makes me think that she had to have taken out an insurance policy on them in case something happened to them. And I just find that so suspicious. Everything Diane does is is suspicious. (laughs) Okay, that's true. So Detective McGamus decided to focus on what would motivate Diane to harm or murder her family. Starting with Mark, who could never keep a job, support his family financially, and had been unfaithful to her, so she says. For Diane, he was a burden, and he wasn't benefiting her in any way. For Sean, his medical history of autism, seizures, and strokes was a responsibility that Diane no longer wanted. Though he did work in a program for special needs children, he still relied heavily on Diane. And though Sarah went off to college and obtained a degree in French, it made it extremely difficult for her to find a job when she graduated. For the most part, all of the children and her husband relied on Diane for financial and emotional support. That all of the stress from her family was the cause of what sent her over the edge, and this was her only way out. Uh, Motherhood is hard. It is. But you don't kill your children. Right. I mean, that's the last thing. Like, Go take a bath, you know? Go relax. Yeah. Therapy. Take a vacation. If you need to get away from your family for a while, do it. Go be by yourself for a while. But you don't murder your children. That's never the way out. Never. (laughs) And guess what? His fake empathy towards Diane paid off. She started opening up, but the story she told the detective was... Well, odd. (laughs) She claimed that when it came to Sarah, she was becoming extremely frustrated with her lack of effort to find a job and started yelling at her. Next thing she knew, Sarah was going to the garage and pointing at a bottle of antifreeze, telling her that it kills cats and humans. As if that wasn't odd enough, she started drinking it as an act of rebellion against her mother. She then went on to claim that Sean and Mark did the same thing, resulting in their deaths. Diane's way of getting even with her husband and children drinking the antifreeze was to wait for a long time to take any of them to the hospital after they became sick. (laughs) That is the dumbest story I've ever heard. Like, nobody does that. No, you don't get in an argument. And then the person goes and is like, oh, you see this antifreeze? I'm going to drink it. No, that, what? 
No one has yeah. ever done that. That's not a thing. What is she? <laughs> she's <laughs> definitely not. <laughs> Does she really think anyone's going to believe that? Well, like most of us, the detective was not buying any of that bullshit. He told Diane with confidence, you knew your family was drinking antifreeze and they didn't. We both know that. And then continued with, you knew they were drinking antifreeze because you gave it to them. Diane could not maintain this absurd explanation and admit it to poisoning her family by slipping a little bit of antifreeze into their drinks every day, once a day. Starting with Mark and his Gatorade. Then once he passed away, she moved on to Sean and then to Sarah slipping it into their Coca-Colas. When she noticed it wasn't affecting them fast enough, she would add a little bit more antifreeze into their drinks to speed up the process. That's so messed up. It's really disturbing. And they didn't have any idea that she was poisoning them. Well, that's one question that I figured that everybody would have. How could they not taste the antifreeze, right? Well, conjurers, I know that we aren't all antifreeze experts, so I put in the work to find the answer to that question. Antifreeze is colorless and odorless. One of its primary components is ethylene glycol, which provides a sweet taste to antifreeze, which complements soda, juice, and other sugary drinks. The symptoms observed in all three Saudi family victims align precisely with those typically experienced by someone who has ingested antifreeze, including headaches, fatigue, nausea, vomiting, slurred speech, and lack of coordination. As the body metabolizes antifreeze over the next several hours, it will begin to disrupt the kidney, lungs, brain, and nervous system functions. This is followed by organ damage that will manifest within 24 to 72 hours. An antifreeze overdose, or death resulting from antifreeze poisoning, can occur if someone consumes more than a few milliliters. And get this, one way to prevent death by antifreeze is to promptly call 911 or seek medical assistance to treat the poisoning. The quicker the person receives help, the higher the likelihood of survival and complete recovery. But she's not going to do that because she's literally trying to kill them with antifreeze. Exactly. Now, the next question you may have is how was this not detected during Sean's autopsy and Sarah's medical exam? Well, in order to detect antifreeze during an autopsy, a medical examiner needs to specifically look for it, making it one of the most used products to poison someone with. Now, listen, I'm not here to give anybody ideas. I'm just here to give you some medical knowledge. That is really scary. It makes me wonder how many people are poisoned with antifreeze. And just nobody ever finds out. That goes undetected. Antifreeze no, is everywhere. I mean, you get it for your car. It's you can just go buy readily it. readily available. <laughs> and, and it doesn't get detected unless someone's looking for it. That's scary. That's very scary. I feel like they should just be running those tests regardless. But Always. Yeah. Any, any unexpected death, just test for it, just in case. It's so crazy. So let's get into her motive for harming each family member. It came down to Diane simply hating Mark's guts, stating that she didn't even need his money. In Sean's case, he was a burden and was starting to interfere with her life so much that it began to affect her work. On the other hand, Sarah was a difficult child due to the debt she acquired from college and couldn't find a job fast enough to pay it off. And can we just pause for one second? And discuss how insane it is to punish your child for going to school and racking up debt for a degree in this economy. Right. And they probably pushed her to go to college in the first place. Exactly. Like, give the girl some time. 
So one question still remained. So if both of her kids were a burden on her, does that mean that Brianna was going to be next? She had learning disabilities as well. That's the question that remains, right? So Rachel and Brianna, are they also being poisoned? And if not, why were they spared? Also, why was Sarah taken to the hospital but not Mark and Sean? If the goal was their death, why not wait it out at home until Sarah passes away? Well, Diane told detectives that Rachel convinced her to take Sarah to the hospital. And the reason Brianna and Rachel were spared was because she loves them. So there you have it. She doesn't love her other children? Apparently not. Apparently not. (laughs) Jesus. But Diane had confessed. And the next task would be to interview Rachel and share the devastating news that her mother was responsible for the death of her father, brother, and near death of her sister. Wait, Sarah didn't die? No, 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 no. We never said Sarah died. We just said oh, she was I think I just assumed that she was dead. <laughs> I mean, it's safe to assume she's dead, right? I mean, the, the rest of them. Died. Oh, they said that it was unlikely that she'll recover. That's exactly. what we said. Exactly. Okay, yeah. but she's not dead yet. Okay. Nope. Nope. Okay, so what did Rachel have to say about this? Well, when Detective McAmis broke the news to Rachel, he explained to her that Diane had been poisoning her family members with antifreeze by putting it into their drinks. And Rachel was as devastated as a daughter and sibling would be following this news, that her mother was a murderer and her sister was in the hospital and her father and brother were gone. And on top of that, she was now responsible for 11-year-old Brianna. After her world was turned upside down and her mother's arrest, Rachel was sent home. During the interviews following Diane's arrest, she spoke so highly of Rachel over her other children, so much that it started to feel like Diane did not do this alone. They decided it was time to bring Rachel in for another interview. And when they did, they asked her, do you think your mother could do something like this? And Rachel immediately responded no. However, she didn't know that there was one piece of evidence she never thought investigators would get their hands on, Rachel's personal journal. And I'm going to read one of her entries. It said, It's sad how I realize that my father will pass on in the next two months. Sean, my brother, will move on shortly after. And it will be tough getting used to the changes, but everything will work out. I did not see this coming. Yeah, not at all. The favorite daughter was in on it, too? I mean, it would make sense, but... I I don't know if it makes sense. I thought Diane, Diane had just snapped and lost it. But what's Rachel's excuse? (laughs) Well, when she was faced with that journal entry, Rachel admitted that with the help of her mother, she poisoned her father, brother, and sister with the antifreeze. She said they came up with this plan around Christmas of 2011. So that was about five months before her father passed away. They shared a book on poisonous plants and went on to look for poisons that were untraceable, leading them to their choice of antifreeze. Rachel and Diane would take turns putting antifreeze in their family members' drinks twice daily over several weeks, running through four to five gallons of antifreeze for each of them. When asked why they decided to take Sarah to the hospital, Rachel said, and I quote, to get ready for this, I didn't want another one to die in the house because houses are nasty after someone died in it. I get a lot of nightmares. Like Sean, after he died, I moved into his room and it was awful in there, end quote. And yes, she said it just like that. (laughs) She later confessed that she and her mother were planning on taking Brianna's life next. Aw, poor Rachel. The house is gross after she murders her family members. She's insane. That's like an insane thing to say. Wow. I hope he haunted you. 
I really do. Right? Right? Okay. And remember the pastor who called the tip to the police? Uh-huh. Well, it turns out that Rachel confided in him regarding her and her mother's crimes before Sarah's hospitalization due to her quote unquote guilt. Okay, so Rachel felt guilty, but ultimately when the detectives were questioning them, Diane was willing to take the rap for everything. She didn't even mention that Rachel was involved. Right. And what's crazy is Rachel ultimately testified against her mother. She was facing severe legal consequences, obviously. Her testimony played a crucial role in providing additional information, revealing the planning involved, the family dynamics, and the motive behind the murders. The discovery of antifreeze in the Saudi household during a search, along with proximity of Coca-Cola bottles to the stored antifreeze, served as tangible evidence supporting Diane's confession that she mixed the poison with the drinks for her family. In 2015, Rachel accepted a plea deal for a life sentence and the possibility of parole after 42 and a half years. In 2016, Diane pleaded guilty to two counts of first-degree murder and one count of assault. She received three life terms with no possibility of parole. I feel like Rachel got off easy. I do too, but I mean, 42 and a half years is a long time. It's still a decent sentence, but her mom got three life sentences and they committed the same crime. And she was an adult too, so you would think she would also get the same thing, but... I mean, I guess it's because she spoke up against her mother. Once detectives cornered her, it's not like she came forward on her own. (laughs) Both of them deserve life without parole. Agreed. (laughs) Ultimately, at the end of the day. Okay, so they both got life sentences, at least. I assume they're both still in prison then. Yeah. Diane Saudi is serving her sentence at the Correctional Center in Chillicothe, Missouri. Despite her detailed confession, she suggested in a 2022 interview with 2020 that she was not guilty. Attempting to deflect blame by claiming that her husband had connections with dangerous individuals who might have wanted to harm him. Oh, please. Yeah, like, girl, give it up. Is Rachel claiming to be innocent, too? Well, Rachel, on the other hand, is serving a life sentence at the Women's Eastern Reception Diagnosis and Correctional Center in Vendela, Missouri. Rachel undergoes reception diagnosis and evaluation processes within the correctional facility, focusing on individual needs and rehabilitation. Living under the strict regulations of the facility, she faces the consequences of her choices and is monitored closely as she serves her life sentence and will be eligible for parole when she's in her 60s. Now, you asked about Sarah earlier. Now let's get into the very alive Sarah Stoudy. She's now 26 and survived the antifreeze poisoning, but not without consequences. I'm so glad she survived, though. I was so worried. (laughs) I know, she is lucky, but she does suffer from brain damage and needs around-the-clock care now, requiring her to live in an assisted living facility. She is still a devout Christian, draws strength from her spirituality, and dreams of her late father and brother as her guardian angels. Despite residing in an assisted care facility with a state-appointed guardian, Sarah remains determined to fulfill her dreams of becoming a French translator and spreading awareness about poisoning survivors. Her story is one of survival and unwavering spirit to reclaim her future, despite the pain and the loss that she endured. During the sentencing of Rachel and Diane, Rachel apologized to her sister Sarah in court. Sarah would later say throughout various media interviews that she forgives her sister and mother for their crimes against herself and her family. Now, not much is available about the youngest Brianna, and I'm sure it's because she was a minor at the time. 
but we do know that she's no longer subjected to what her mother and sibling had in store for her, and she's now 22 years old and hopefully thriving in life. The tragic events of the Stoudy family murders stand as a haunting testament to the fact that darkness can unexpectedly reside within seemingly ordinary households. In the pursuit of justice, it becomes crucial to unveil the hidden horrors that may be concealed behind closed doors. This leaves us with one question I hope you never have to encounter. If your own blood can't be trusted, what remains? Crime Stoppers USA is a national organization that spans the United States to create a network of local programs that work together to prevent and solve crimes in communities across the nation. Crime Stoppers is entirely anonymous, and the process of calling Crime Stoppers is simple. You call 1-877-903-STOP, which puts you in contact with the Crime Stoppers Command Center. An operator will answer the phone and take down the information you wish to provide about a crime. They will never ask for your name, number, address, or any other identifying information. You can also place a tip on the website from the Tip Submit button on the main page. To view images, information, and sources from this case, visit our website at crimeandconjure.com. Research and writing for this episode was done by Stefan Shan. Editing of this episode by Denver Fortner Productions with music by Jordan Nalina. Be sure to check out our Instagram at Podcast for our question of the week. You can also find us on TikTok. Sham, what's our conjure tip of the week? Today I want to talk about smudging. It's a traditional Native American practice that involves burning sacred herbs such as sage, to purify and cleanse a space or a person. It is a spiritual practice that has been used for centuries to remove negative energy and restore balance and harmony. So next time the energy in your home fills off, light up some sage. Just a reminder to our listeners, please keep in mind that smudging with white sage is a sacred tradition for many indigenous communities. And over the years, corporations have worked to turn it into a fad that they can market to the masses. Please be respectful of this spiritual practice and either buy your white sage from indigenous sellers or smudge using common garden sage instead. I know that's right. Until Until next time, stay vigilant, conjurers. conjurers.